Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Tuckwell, a senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed of a general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. I'm fortunate to have with me Dr. Lachese, a paediatrician working in southern New South Wales. Now, before we start, Dr. Lachese, would you mind telling us just a bit about yourself and your role? Yes, certainly. So I trained in pediatrics back a little while ago and uh, was a pediatrician in Canada. Just prior to that, though, I worked at Westmead in the ED and the ICU as a, an advanced trainee in acute care. And then I worked as a pediatrician in Canada for about seven years in uh, rural northern British Columbia, did a bit of locums all over northern Canada and throughout British Columbia as well. And then I moved to Australia and began working a bit in Victoria and a Trilgan hospital for six months, and then finally settled here in southern New South Wales for the last six months. And I, and I've just got my all of the accreditation for my um, Canadian training here. And so officially I'm an Australian pediatrician. Oh, that's fantastic. So we'll start with a case. We've got a two-week-old boy who was brought to the emergency department with a three-day history of vomiting with no improvement. It was non-bilious, non-bloody, but described as projectile. There were no fevers or diarrhoea. He'd been feeding 60 mils per feed and had decreased wet nappies the last four days. There was a background of a lower segment cesarean section for previous. His group B strep negative, no resuscitation, and was sent home at 72 hours of life. He was the third baby of a local family. And there were no other concerns. His birth weight was 3.2 kilograms. Now, his initial observations were a temperature of 37.8, a heart rate of 140, a respiratory rate of 35, blood pressure of 60 on 40, and oxygen saturations of 99% on room air and a weight of 3.2 kilograms. So Dr. Lachese, if we look at these initial observations, how would you interpret these? Yeah, so firstly, I want to get a bit more information from mum about decreased wet nappies and really how much output is the baby having. And, you know, the birth weight is one of the vitals uh, and the weight is one of the vitals. So there's really been no change from birth weight to the current weight, which, you know, could be normal for a 14-day-old baby, but would definitely be noted when we're looking at those vitals. I'd also clarify the vomiting and the amount of vomiting every day, whether it's positing, how often the baby's vomiting, and kind of what mum is describing as projectile. Um, but looking at the vitals, you know, it's not, you know, the temperature is a low-grade, te- we could consider potentially a low-grade temperature, not really striking above 38 degrees Celsius. So we'd have to keep that in mind. The heart rate for a two-week-old is fairly within normal limits. The respiratory rate, 35 Again, not too concerning. Blood pressure is okay for this child's age and the oxygen saturations really is is good. So we'd really have to have a good exam of the baby to assess what level of dehydration we're looking at and if there's anything else going on. Fantastic. So what would your approach be to the initial examination of this baby? 
So for a baby, it's a very holistic examination. So I try to look for something wrong because I always feel like little babies are trying to hide something from you. And so starting just examining the baby, how does baby look in mom's arms? Is their tone low? Are they feeding? Are they responsive? Two weeks of age is really difficult because generally they're, um, they don't do very much except for feed and sleep. And so I think this baby had a little bit of low tone. And then I start from the top to the bottom and really have a good look at the head, feel the anterior fontanelle. Is it bulging? Is it flat? Is it sunken? I'm always thinking about, you know, whether it's meningitis, which can be very difficult to detect in a newborn or any signs of non-accidental injury causing intracranial bleed. And then moving downwards. So the pupils are, are they equal reactive if the baby's awake? And always looking in the mouth, we tend to really bypass that in newborns. But if the frenulum is torn, that could be a sign of force feeding and another sign, again, of non-accidental injury, unfortunately. Yeah. And then, you know, the neck, we do check to see if it's supple or not, but that won't rule out, even if it's nice and supple. Angitis, as we know, the rigidity really kind of forms only after six months of age is when we can form more of a diagnosis with neck stiffness. And then going downwards, of course, our heart sounds and making sure there's no murmurs, uh, potentially showing signs of underlying congenital cardiac anomaly. Chest is clear and noting any work of breathing that might be associated. If there is work of breathing or tachypnea, we are more in line thinking that this could be potentially, you know, sepsis or an underlying uh, congenital pneumonia that's developing. Um and then, of course, we're at the abdomen. So is it distended? Is it soft? Is it tender? It's difficult to, uh, sometimes to elucidate, elucidate, tell if a baby's abdomen is tender. You know, they cry when you, we, if they cry when you touch it, is it because you're touching them, they're irritable, or is it their abdomen? But definitely any signs of rigidity and any lumps or masses. Olive being palpated is obviously the one we know so well with pyloric stenosis, but really Wilms tumors would be a mass on either flank. Having a good look at the umbilicus because erythema or redness or warmth and tenderness there can be a very uh, sinister, sinister sign of um, underlying infection that can go directly into the blood. And finally, never forgetting to assess both in females and males, testic the any signs of inguinal hernia or incarcerated inguinal hernia, uh, really opening the nappy at all times and having a good look at the testicles, making sure there's no signs of incarcerated hernias that could easily, easily be missed. And again, looking in those areas also exposes any underlying rash or any secondary signs of non-accidental injury. So doing a head to toe of the baby, looking at their skin again, making sure there's no signs of petechiae or bruising or fingerprints or deformed bones and having a good, and of course, you know, with our, our doing a nice, a good cap refill centrally and checking the anus to make sure it's patent because that's one of the top three things that will miss at the newborn screen is a um, imperfect anus. So I think that's my general approach initially <laughs> to oh, a vomiting baby. Yes, that's fantastic. And I was just listening to something the other day where they were saying that in, in this age group, you know, the history is often so limited that a really thorough examination is just so important to try and get as many clues as you can. So that's that's great. So when the baby was examined, the following was found. The baby was not dysmorphic, although not very chubby, had slightly sunken eyes. The anterior fontanelle was soft but not sunken. The neck was subtle 
Heart sounds were dual and regular. The lungs were clear with no increased work of breathing. The abdomen was soft, flat, with a normal umbilicus, but there was thought there might be an olive-shaped mass palpable. The testes were descended. The child was moving all four limbs but had low tone. Colour was okay and the capillary refill was three seconds. Now, for this baby, we would need to get an urgent blood sugar level as well as get IV access. I tend to get this sort of early as part of my initial examination. What are your thoughts on getting a a blood sugar level in sick babies? Oh, yes, definitely, Um, especially in this baby who has lower tone. Um, Babies have such low reserve, um, especially babies on the smaller side that, um, you know, it's part of your ABG, you know. Um, So definitely don't forget the glucose. And it's a simple test as well, just a finger prick and you've got an answer. Uh, But as you said, Louise, I agree. I tend to put my IV in and um, get the glucose with that right away. This baby would definitely need, given the low tone and uh, the persistent vomiting and the slightly sunken eyes, a sunken fontanelle would need fluid resuscitation. So I think with my IV, I would initiate a sugar. And I think you mentioned something that I forgot to mention in the history was dysmorphisms. Looking for dysmorphisms in a baby uh, on their physical exam is so important because that really gives you clues that there's something else, that there is definitely something else underlying their presentation. Fantastic. Now, I've heard it said that if it's not in your differential, then you won't make the diagnosis. Now, I think it's extremely important always to have a differential rather than just document my impression and only put down one diagnosis. So what would be your differential for this vomiting flat baby? Yeah, no, definitely. I think we it, it then creates a bit of a cognitive bias if we just have that one impression and we just, and then I find that it creates bias for everyone else who comes as well. I, you know, it, it just, we all focus on that one and tend to not look outside the box where, and in babies, it's really important to not just focus on that one because generally it's a present in such a variety of different ways for such a variety of different things at at this age. So yeah, no, definitely. I try always to, you know, have that one impression obviously, but have a differential. And I try to always include two to three in my differential to make sure I'm not missing something. So I guess in this baby, if this baby presented with that little olive, I think everyone would kind of say, yeah, you know, could it be pyloric stenosis? Although the baby is a little bit young for it. And definitely, ones you cannot miss are the cyst and the meningitis and of course a urinary tract infection but just a, a note on the UTI I wouldn't um I wouldn't definitely like spend all my time trying to catch a urine before I started antibiotics in a baby that I thought was flat and potentially febrile I think it's it's um you know the the blood culture and uh, and initial bloods are the most important things um and then of course you know gastroenteritis and we don't want to rule out a bowel obstruction and of course, in, incarcerated in guinal hernia, but we've kind of ruled those two things out on our exam with the palpa- with the, the incarcerated in guinal hernia and the baby's tummy was flat and it's unlikely a bowel obstruction, but I would still keep it in mind. The other thing that is screened on newborn screen now is adrenal crisis in a, in a boy in particular. And of course, like I mentioned at the beginning, it, always think about non-accidental injury. That's one I try to keep on my differential at all times. Not that it will be, but it's important not to miss. 
And then in, in babies, we always kind of think of metabolic disorders. Could it be an intoxication or a poisoning? And um, those are just kind of those other ones we you can keep in the back of your mind. And did you ask how the management or just the differential? Just the differential at this stage. No, I think that's great. Okay, perfect, yeah. I, I think with that anchoring, I mean, it can end up being, you know, the baby over there with a possible pyloric stenosis and that gets handed over. And then three hours down, has the baby actually had any antibiotics? You know, these things can, you know, get, get missed. So, so I would actually give any sick baby antibiotics after the IV goes in, essentially. Would you agree with that as, a, as an approach? 100%. You've got your blood culture. And even if you don't have your blood culture, no one would fault anyone for giving antibiotics early to a baby who appeared unwell. Fantastic. So, um, you know. yeah, and I think even in, in afebrile babies, I, any, any child who's sick, mm-hmm. I always do cultures, even if they haven't got a fever, because I just want to have that in the pipeline. Oh. Definitely, definitely. If they present flat, low tone, you've put an IV in, you manage to get blood cultures. If we're concerned, early antibiotics, we know, you know, prevent sepsis so or save lives. Right. Now, this projectile vomiting, it's often quite tricky to ascertain on the mm-hmm. history whether it is actually projectile. What, how do you try and ascertain this? Yeah, so that's a really tricky question. And I guess when we're asking about projectile, we're always we're all thinking about pyloric stenosis. So what I tend to do is I tend to stand next to a wall and put myself about three quarters of a meter away from the wall and, and say, if you held your baby up here, would the vomit hit the wall? Uh, and so that's really like a projectile vomit. That being said, you know, all vomits are kind of projectile because when you're vomiting and not just positing, it's projecting vomit out of your mouth, right? So by definition, vomit is projectile. So getting that really good history of really forceful, a good distance, hitting a wall, vomit. Now there's two caveats to that. One being if it's an early pyloric stenosis, sometimes they, you won't get that big projectile. And the other kind of thing with pyloric stenosis, off after they vomit, they're often ravenous. Like they just want to feed again. They're thirsty. Um, whereas in a gastroenteritis, often they'll vomit and they don't want anything to do with feeding again. So getting that projectile history as well as what happens after, are they keen to feed? And, and the other thing with the projectile vomiting and pyloric stenosis, it happens or should happen. There's always an exception to a rule um, after every feed. Although that being said, I just had a pyloric stenosis that was actually quite severe that we admitted overnight for observation and did vomit overnight, but we were giving smaller, more frequent feeds. And then the morning had a big chalk, got an ultrasound and it was pyloric stenosis. So there's an exception to every rule, but uh, for the general, the general, um, um, the general statement is that, um, yeah, after every vomit, very hungry after the vomit and can hit a wall. Oh, that's very helpful. So what initial investigations would be important in the workup of this baby at this stage? Yeah, so you, we mentioned the glucose. So that would be the first point of action with when we're doing the bloods and then uh, getting FBC to see if there's any elevation. In this case, the baby's was um, normal. Getting a chemistry, so your electrolytes. I tend to get LFTs as well. In this case, we just got uh, chemistry, including a glucose. Um, a CRP and of course a blood culture. In this case, the baby's 
glucose was 2.8 um, millimoles per liter and the sodium was one, which is low on the low side, sodium 131 millimoles per liter, which was low as well. And a potassium is 6.1 millimoles per liter and a bichloride, which was low as normal, 98 millimoles per liter. And the CRP wasn't crazy. It was 15, but as we all know, getting a CRP early doesn't really differentiate between, I mean, we can't hang our hat on the CRP. Other things, of course, would be abdominal x-ray because we were kind of considering, could this be obstruction and a urine? But again, I always say, you know, the urine is important because it could be a urinary tract infection, but I wouldn't delay antibiotherapy, especially if I've already had a blood culture, just because I'm waiting for a urine, if it, the child was sick. Oh, right. and of course, an ultrasound. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, the ultrasound did not show evidence of pelvic stenosis. Very good. So those blood results look quite interesting. So I'll just recap. The sugar was 2.8. Sodium 131, the potassium yep. was 6.1, and the low bicarb of 14. So how would you interpret these results? Well, these results are actually really exciting to a pediatrician. The Obviously, the hypoglycemia we'd want to treat right away. So uh, that would be first point of call. But looking at our differential, it's interesting. The low sodium and the hyperkalemia point to what we would consider an adrenal crisis, a salt-wasting um, adrenal crisis. But as you and I know, in little babies, gosh, how many times do you get an elevated potassium? You know, so sometimes I would look at this and think, is that real? You know, but in the context of a low sodium and elevated potassium and a low bicarb showing a bit of, you know, dehydration and potentially metabolic acidosis, right away, those to combine things with sodium high potassium, I would think is, can this be an adrenal crisis secondary to congenital adrenal hyperplasia? Uh, now, the other thing we know, or we, we kind of know, it points away from the diagnosis of uh, pyloric stenosis, where that tends to be more hypokalemia, metabolic acidosis, and hypochloremia. So, we're definitely not in that realm and our bar carb isn't elevated. So I'm pretty happy with those values saying, oh yeah, I can put that to rest. It's not polar stenosis. What are we dealing with? Is this a true adrenal crisis? And so I would probably repeat my potassium, to be honest. I probably wouldn't believe it right away, but that's important just to know if you have a low sodium and high potassium, ah, could this be adrenal hyperplasia? And that's what this baby's hiding from me. In terms of managing with, you know, fluids and, and trying to correct some of these abnormalities, how would you go about that? Well, like as I mentioned, I think the first point of call would be to give the dextrose. And so in newborns, uh, we give IV two mils per kilo of 10% glucose. Now, if, the, you know, ideally we'd have an IV in this baby. There are situations we know where you wouldn't, you know, where maybe it's difficult access, the IO comes out anywhere. There's all kinds of things that can happen. And while we're getting the IO ready, we can give, as we do, we can give bucogel. So if you do have, you know, that the buccal glucogel in your department, or if there's a maternity where that might happen, then that's always an option while you're waiting uh, to get the IO ready or to, to have someone establish intravenous access. Now you've got your intravenous access ready. Fantastic. 
then you would, I would give the, the fluid bolus. Now in neonates, sometimes we start with 10 mils per kilo, especially under a month of age. If you're unsure if there's any kind of cardiac ideology, uh, but if, and I would, and then you can quickly give another 10 mil per kilo afterwards, if you see there is response to that. Then uh, I would start, and, and this child wasn't particularly tachycardic. So I think we would be okay in doing the 10 mils first assessing and then giving another 10 mil. Uh, and then I would start maintenance. So in neonates, <laughs> it's a bit different than in, this is kind of a caveat here. It's a bit different. So anyone under a month would fall under the neonatal guideline. And that's where we start dextrose 10% and not the 5% as in pediatrics. And then the sodium is 0.225%. But I always try to um, normal saline, uh, sorry, uh, uh, sodium chloride. Uh, I always try to remember, you know, it's fine if you just remember 0.2 percent normal saline as um, sodium chloride. That's fine. That, if that's easier than 0.225. So it's about 200 millimole per liter. And if in doubt, and if you're concerned and you're not sure, just call a friend. <laughs> sure, sure. And in terms of, um, yeah, I suppose that's the other option is to call the pediatrician, but is there somewhere you could look up the, the fluids for the babies of different ages to find these? You know, uh, I always, I find a really easy one where you don't have to put any passwords in and all that is the Royal Children's Hospital Guidelines in Melbourne. If you just look, I think there's a section for neonatal fluids. Okay. You just look it up and scroll down. They're really good. Yeah. I'm trying to think of any other ones that are not, I usually use a lot of Canadian guidelines, so I won't think of those. But yeah, I would for, for Australia, I would say try the Royal Children's. It's fairly simple to follow. Yeah, and they're available on our intranet page, and there's, I've got it as an app on my phone. Exactly. So that's that's easy. Exactly, I have it as an app as my, on my phone, and I'm a pediatrician, so <laughs> there you go. Don't feel bad using it. Um, and what about the hyperkalemia in this baby? How would you go about managing that? So I think uh, obviously we'd put this baby on cardiac monitor and get a proper ECG. Now, if it's the rhythm is fine, I would definitely repeat and see where we're at. If it was not fine in a non-perfusing rhythm, well, um, you give your IV calcium to protect and then start trying to drop your potassium. And uh, you can do that. I find it's easiest in babies to use salbutamol in, 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 like as a NEB, uh, aerosolized, not IV, because it's easier to control. It's not too dramatic. The insulin and the sodium bicarb, it just reduces, it, it becomes a bit more um, difficult to manage. But, you know, if you were giving the insulin, you'd have to be watching the sugar very, very, very closely because as we know, they have less of a reserve and that would be the thing to watch. And this baby already had a bit of a low sugar. So I think that would be, um, it's an option, but it's difficult. Uh, sodium bicarb, yes, it's, it, we could, that can be used as well. And it reduces, yes, acidosis, but we tr it's um, it causes a lot of imbalance to manage quite acutely. But again, we'd be in discussion with NETS and really whatever they would prefer I would do. But I find the salbutamol is such an easy thing to just put on them and you don't have to mess around with fluids and do all kinds of calculations. It's just a bit easier and um, more available. Now, in the long term, in older children, often I find sometimes the K-exalate works really well, you know, just the sodium potassium, potassium exchange resin that is oral, or you can put per rectum. And sometimes that really does a trick suit very easily. And the other kind of, if we're not in dire straits, is furosemide. Again, in babies, you have to watch their fluid balance quite quickly, but usually that's good. 
Oh, that's very good. So, I mean, essentially you could start your calcium as a cardiac stabiliser and then be talking to the paediatricians or nets, you know, in this sort of, you know, critical incident. I think so. You can, well, as long as the rhythm is okay, right? Yeah. Like you give your calcium and then talk to someone. Exactly. Fantastic. So, Dr. Lachese, would you mind explaining to us what an adrenal crisis is? So, I guess the main um, presentation or the main manifestation of the adrenal crisis is when the child either gets sick or uh, has a bit of a stress on the body, and because they're they have lacking of the steroids, the uh, and uh, mineral corticoids, they other uh, body can't cope or compensate. And it's it's also a progression. So obviously, with any daily stresses cumulatively, and as they grow, they just aren't developing properly. So one of the manifestations with the glucocorticoid deficiency, in particular, so that first steroid arm, the cortisol, would be uh, the acute illness uh, triggering, and then the body unable to compensate for that, presenting with vomiting, hypoglycemia, apparent shock, and not responsive to fluids. Uh, and again, your initial management would be fluids. And then once you've identified the issue, replacing the cortisol, usually with prednis- methylprednisone. Now, if there's additional mineral corticoid deficiency, so the associated aldosterone arm, uh, you'll present additionally with hyperkalemia and uh, deficiency in that aspect. So you'd replace with, in the long term, with flutocortisone. Uh, but often in these situations, we use hydrocortisone instead of methylprednisone as it has more of mineral corticoid activity. After the recording of this podcast, Dr. Lachese just wanted me to add that the steroid of choice for the treatment of an adrenal crisis is hydrocortisone. Uh, one of the important things to know is that because, you know, the cortisol and the aldosterone arms are being so are deficient, a lot of the shifting of cholesterol goes down the, the last arm where it, it progresses into androstenedione and DHAAS. And that's why we get a lot of females are virilized and we can recognize that they're virilized at birth um, because they've been exposed in utero to so much, so many steroids, uh, androstenedione, and, and they become virilized. Whereas in boys, we don't recognize it. So it's one of those things that often that you have to have a higher index of suspicion in boys. And um, the... Um, the other thing I was going to mention is that there is the newborn screen, so it's kind of come off our differential a little bit, but sometimes newborn screen isn't ready in those first two weeks, so we still have to think about it. Um, uh, so that is one of the methods of diagnosis. Sometimes these children will be picked up at day nine, uh, and generally they get sick at about two to three weeks of age. And then the other way we diagnose it formally is uh, with uh, 17 OHP, and so that their level uh, will be abnormal. But obviously, that's not in the acute care setting. So in the acute setting, it's the mm, the hyponatremia, the hyperkalemia, and the unresponsiveness to uh, fluids for shock. Um, yeah, and as I mentioned before, I think there's another form that's a bit less acute onset that usually presents in adolescents with hypertension, and that's just a bit of a different pathway. But those are the main the main take home method messages, and usually we suspect it in uh, boys who have failure to thrive, not gaining weight appropriately, and may just not have 
look a little bit unwell. They don't always present in, in a shock-like state. And generally, we do their electrolytes. And that's why we often do them. And that's when we'll see that discrepancy between the sodium and potassium. Okay, great. So really just a, a clinical diagnosis and that hyponatremia, yes. hyperkalemia and, and non-responsive exactly. shock. So, I mean, even in the adult world, we sometimes consider, you know, non-responsive shock, you've given your antibiotics and fluids to consider an adrenal crisis. And so I suppose hydrocortisone exactly. is a shot for covering that as a, as a possibility. Definitely, 100%. Yeah, yeah, so fantastic. So do you have any other last, you know, advice or comments you'd make about, you know, when we're confronted with a, a vomiting neonate that we sort of need to keep in mind for our management in the um, emergency in a rural setting? Yes, I think really getting a good, trying to get as much information from the parent as possible and really not to always um, attributing this to reflux or, you know, uh, uh, a gastro bug. Uh, and really taking the time to, you know, assess the level of dehydration, ensuring you check a glucose on the physical exam will give you the most information uh, and really, you know, checking the abdomen, checking the anterior fontanelle, looking at the testicles because, and opening up the nappy, you know, really having a good look in the diaper area and making sure we don't miss, you know, anal stenosis or atresia and no uh, incarcerated hernias. And always keeping in mind, unfortunately, non-accidental injury and looking for signs of that, if that, if it is, you know, a shaken baby or, or, or other, but in the event of those weird and, you know, the adrenal crisis and very odd metabolic disorders, they're the, the weird and wonderful that, you know, we always keep in mind, but really something that will help you steer you in that direction would be the sugar. So often in cases uh, where it's a more weird and wonderful metabolic and uh, disease, sometimes the sugar will be abnormal. So I guess the other thing we, one could do if things weren't going your way with typical management would be to do an ammonia or a urinogenic acid. But again, those are things down the road. Really, I think the most important thing is good physical exam, really assessing the family, family history and going through your treatments, fluids, sugar, antibiotics, if deemed necessary. Fantastic. And, and I urine. think also the other consideration obviously is if we have green, which is, you know, bile, bilious vomiting, that's oh, yes, a surgical <laughs> emergency as well. So isn't it? Oh, definitely. Any child with bilious emesis or blood that's not maternal, definitely, definitely, definitely refer um, to you and uh, needs further investigations to rule out malrotation or obstruction. And I find there's often a lot of confusion about people with bile and what colour bile is. And my understanding is it, it's basically green as opposed to sort of, you know, orangey yeah. yellow ones. Is is um, that your understanding? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's quite funny, actually. They've done studies where they've shown different gastric aspirates to different people and there's been a variety of different people interpreting where the bile starts mm. but the end result is yes it's green it has to be green and I usually I'll find something in the room that's a dark green or a green in color and make sure that the parents say yeah it was green like that because yellow is not bile it's stomach juice and sometimes I'll ask the family to show me a towel that they've thrown up on and to show me where the green is 
And so, yeah, so I think that's really important because we don't want to go down a pathway we don't need to if it's just yellow. Although that being said, yellow can turn to green, but bile is green. Fantastic. So, uh, and that's, uh, yeah, as I said, an emergency for us, isn't it? So, um, oh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Lachesa. I really appreciate going through this case, which highlighted a number of important sort of assessment and management options. And um, and thanks for all the work you do in our rural communities. Thanks again. Pleasure. Thank you, Louise, for thinking of me anytime.